Good morning, church. Grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. It is an absolute delight to be with you under the overpass of 95. Isn't that nuts? Have you gotten over that yet? This is nuts. This is awesome. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not surprised that you guys have been this creative to find ways to come together and to worship and celebrate the glory of God in Christ. Um, I'm not surprised that you've done that for this purpose because I've been watching you over these last several years and especially during the pandemic find creative ways to show the love of Jesus to your neighbors and to those who reside in the city of Philadelphia who are in desperate need of the good news of Jesus. So it doesn't surprise me that you've been this creative in finding ways to get together to worship because by the grace of God, you have looked to the Spirit to lead you and empower you to be creative and shown the love of Christ. And so I celebrate that to God's glory in your presence this morning. And I'm grateful to be a part of it. I'm not surprised also that you're doing a sermon series right now on questioning Christianity. Because I believe that what's very important for you at this moment as your pastors have, have sought God's wisdom on this issue is to equip you to be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. When you go out and show big love in Jesus' name, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get big persecution on one end, and you're going to get big opportunities on the other end. And so the opportunities to speak up for Jesus, the opportunities to ask, answer hard questions from the Word of God because of the hope you have in Jesus is something that you should expect and something that you should seek to be, seek to be equipped on for the glory of God. So I want to invite you now to take your Bible and go to Romans chapter 11. I'll be reading from there in just a moment. <clears throat> now, this isn't breaking news. This especially isn't a revelation for those of you who are parents. But isn't it true that young children ask a lot of questions? I remember going through a season of parenting when our three children were young. And it, seems, it seemed like all they ever did was eat sleep and ask questions and some of those questions that they would ask were very easy to answer questions like dad do we have any pop tarts i mean is that a rhetorical question i mean while the rest of the world was stocking up on toilet paper during the pandemic we were stocking up on pop tarts why because in our family pop tarts are modern day manna i mean that's obvious right some questions our kids would ask, I like to jokingly defer to my wife. Questions like, oh, where do babies come from? <laughs> but other questions, I was honestly surprised that they would ask. For example, I remember one night putting my oldest son, who's like 17 now, to bed when he was six, and coming along his bedside and getting ready to pray with him to say goodnight, and he had a question for me, as he would often do before he would go to bed. And his question that night was, we, I was astounded that he asked it. He said, Dad, if God is in control of everything, then why did he let Adam and Eve sin? I'm like, son, that's a good question. And as I proceeded to give a biblical answer, I think I put him to sleep. Hopefully the sermon this morning doesn't put you to sleep. But I sought to answer that question. That was the question of a six-year-old who was trying to put the world together, trying to understand what we were teaching them about God and his word, and his, his 
understanding of how messed up things are around us in the world in which we live. And you know what? That's not just the question of a six-year-old. Maybe you've had that question. If God's in control of everything, and if God is so loving, and if God is so powerful, then why is there so much evil and suffering in the world in which we live? In other words, why would such a good God allow such bad things to happen? And that may be your question this morning. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, and you've been examining the truth claims of the Bible, and you've been wondering if Jesus is worthy of your trust and devotion, maybe you've wondered the very same question. How could such a good God allow such bad things to happen? This is a question that's connected to an issue in theology that's often called the problem of evil. And the problem of evil all seeks to answer three successive questions that go something like this. If God is all-knowing, then why doesn't he prevent bad things from happening? If God is so loving and good, then why doesn't he only let good things happen? And if God is all-powerful, then why doesn't he stop bad things from happening? In other words, if God is all-knowing, all-benevolent, and all-powerful, then how can evil exist? And to our present circumstances that we find ourselves in, the circumstances that are leading to us having to meet under Interstate 95 on a Sunday morning, how, how could God allow COVID-19 to happen? Why hasn't he stopped it? And if he's so good, why, ha why does he allow so many people to suffer from it? And to be honest, these are the kinds of questions we should be asking in this moment. We should be asking these kinds of questions in the midst of a global pandemic that's affected over 20 million people globally and has killed almost 800,000 people worldwide. These are the same kinds of questions that the world was asking back in 2004 when a tsunami wiped out 200,000 people in a blink of an eye. The same questions people were asking when two planes piloted by terrorists crashed into the World Trade Center on 9-11. The same questions I asked back on January 28th, 1986, when my classrooms and I were watching the Challenger space shuttle take off. And within 73 seconds of takeoff, all seven astronauts went into eternity as that space shuttle exploded in midair. Where was God in all that? And where is God right now? So to answer those questions, it's important that we understand something significant. These are not the kind of questions we answer with our sentiments. These are the kinds of questions we must answer with Scripture. John Piper, in a recent article that's been turned into a little booklet, Christ and the Coronavirus, said quite pointedly, now is not the time for sentimentality. Now is not the time for sentimentality. 
now is not the time, nor is it ever wise for it to ever be a time when our feelings guide us in such sensitive matters. Now is not the time for our sentiments to answer those pivotal questions. Now is the time for Scripture to answer those questions. Now don't get me wrong, your feelings matter. How you feel, how I feel about these difficult experiences of suffering and evil and disaster and catastrophe, how you feel about these things matters. Not only matters to me, but more importantly matters to God. God cares how you feel. In fact, the book of Psalms invites us to let God know exactly how we feel. God wants us to bring him our laments. God wants us to bring to him our confusion. God wants us to bring to him our hurts. God wants us to bring to him our hard questions. And there in the midst of expressing those feelings to God, he meets us in that moment with care. But not just care. He meets us there with answers. And his answers are sufficient because his answers bring life and his answers are authoritative. So how do the scriptures reveal God in relationship to the existence of evil, tragedy, calamity, disaster, suffering, and pandemics like COVID-19? These questions are important for you to know the answers to biblically, to strengthen your faith as a follower of Jesus. And this question is important for you to have an answer to so that you can give an answer for the hope that lies in you to those who are questioning Christianity. So in an attempt to answer this really big question, which Jeff would admit, you could do a whole series on just answering this question because the Bible answers it honestly at every turn. We could do a tour of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and take a pit stop in every major book, every book of the Bible and see what that book of the Bible says in answering this very, very difficult question. It's all over the place. But I've got one sermon and a short period of time, so I this morning want to give you one point and several proofs. One point and several proofs. How do the scriptures reveal God in relationship to the existence of evil and suffering. One point, here it is. God sovereignly ordains all things according to his wise and unstoppable plan. That's the point. God sovereignly ordains all things according to his wise and unstoppable plan. Now to prove that point, I want to point you to two scriptures and then give a whole, lot of, a whole lot of references for you to jot down and go study later as you seek to put your head and your heart around God's answer. First, Romans chapter 11. I asked you to turn there a few moments ago. Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Let us hear the word of God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul says here in verses 33 through 34 that no one can completely understand the way God thinks. And no one, therefore, can fully comprehend how God acts. No one has ever counseled him. No one has, to use modern lingo, ever coached him or consulted him. God has never needed advice. Why? That's not arrogant. It's what it means to be God. God has never needed help figuring out anything. God is completely and totally self-sufficient. The apostle exclaims that God and God alone is uniquely qualified to make all his decisions without any help. Why? Because he possesses the depths of divine wisdom and knowledge. God thinks how he thinks, and God acts how he acts, and we will never, ever, ever be able to absolutely and completely understand the ways of God. In, in theology, we call this the incomprehensibility of God. God is God alone. He is completely other. This does not give God an out. This gives God the right to be God. He is self-sufficient in all his ways. But here is one thing we can understand. Here is one thing Paul says we can comprehend. And it's this, according to verse 36. Nothing that happens in the cosmos ever happens by accident. Nothing that happens in the cosmos ever happens by accident. Nothing is random. There are no such thing as coincidences, only providences. Why? Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are what? All things. That phrase, all things, in the original language is a very amazing phrase. It means something that's very, very difficult to understand. Ready? All things. <laughs> it means everything. Everything comes from him, everything comes through him, and everything goes to him. He is the source of everything. Who is the him? The hymn is the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Same in essence, distinct in person. So in other words, Paul's saying and summing up verse 36, for from the triune God and through the triune God and to the triune God are all things. To the triune God be glory forever. New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner comments on the scope of this truth. He says, God is the source of all things, the means by which all things are accomplished, and the goal of all things. 
In other words, God is the source, the means, and the goal of everything. Everything is planned by God. Everything comes from God. Everything is accomplished by God. And everything is ultimately done for the glory of God. In other words, our one point, God sovereignly ordains all things according to his wise and unstoppable plan. That's the New Testament text I wanted to point you to. But there's an Old Testament text as well. What Paul says here in Romans 11.36 is right in lockstep with what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 46. You can turn there if you want. Isaiah 46 verses 9 through 10. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah says God declares the end from the beginning and that's a poetic device in Hebrew that means the end the beginning and everything in between. Things not yet done are known and calculated by God. And this is not just simply foreknowledge, that God just knows everything that will happen, that God just simply knows what will happen at the end and what happened at the beginning and what, what will take place in between. This isn't just God knowing ahead of time. Notice the phrase in verse 10, my counsel shall stand. In other words, God planned, God counseled, God strategized about all that would happen between the beginning and the end. And those plans, according to Isaiah, are unalterable. My counsel shall stand. The beginning wasn't open. The end isn't open. The min middle isn't open. God's plans shall stand. That's God being God. There's no plan B. There never was a plan B. Anyone who would explain to you that God, the gospel of Jesus Christ was God's plan B for a plan that went south in Genesis chapter 3 is not teaching you sound theology. There's never been a plan B. God's counsel stands from the beginning to the end. And he takes personal responsibility for this in verse 10. He says, I will accomplish, I will accomplish all my purpose. In other words, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, the scriptures teach this truth clearly. All God decrees shall come to pass. His plan for the beginning, his plan for the end, and everything in between is not only planned by God, but God ensures that it will come to pass. God knows all that will happen because he planned all that will happen, and his plans will be accomplished. 
This is why the Apostle Paul celebrates in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's Paul in the book of Ephesians reflecting on this declaration of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 46. God will do all that he's planned to do from the beginning to the end and everything in between, again, are one point. God sovereignly ordains all things according to his wise and unstoppable plan. That is the one point, and those are simply the two texts that I chose to share with you this morning about that one point, but as I said before, you find this repeated over and over and over again throughout the pages of the Bible. But, but now let me, let me just tease out for a little bit what Paul means by all things. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. What, what are we talking about, Paul? All things, is that an exaggeration? What do you mean by all things? Well, let me give you several proofs. I want to just kind of give you several categories. And I promise <laughs> all of this is necessary for leading up to you having a rock-solid, confident answer when someone asks you the question, how could a good and loving God allow so much evil in the world? This is the foundation that God sovereignly ordains all things according to his wise and unstoppable plans. Let me offer several proofs. What does all things mean? What does all things encompass? Let me just give you a few categories. All things includes God's sovereignty over nature. You know it was God's plan for it to rain this morning, right? It was God's plan for your leaders to scramble and try to figure out, are we still gonna do this? That was God's plan, why? Because God makes it clear that he's in charge of the weather. Where does it say that? You know what I love? I love when I'm reading my Bible and I read a passage of scripture that I haven't read in for a while and I go, oh yeah, that's in the Bible. You ever had that happen before? I love that. Like Job 37 verses, one through, verses 11 through 13. God loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. That's in the Bible. Job comes face to face with the supremacy of God over all things, and he realizes that God's not only in charge of the minute details of his life, God's not only in charge of big global macro events, that God is actually in charge of today's weather. In Mark chapter 4, verse 41, Jesus teaches that, Jesus teaches his disciples that even the winds and the waves obey him. Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that not even a sparrow will fall to the ground unless the Heavenly Father has decreed it. God is sovereign over all of nature. But it's more than just nature. 
Here's another category. All things means that God is sovereign over human activity. For example, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, we read, He, that's God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. In other words, presidents and prime ministers are chosen by God. Both King David in Jerusalem and King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon were God's choices for those moments. We have an election coming up, don't we? Whether we experience that as a happy day, a sad day, or something in between, here's what we can put our confidence in. Whoever is in the White House has been chosen by God because God is sovereign over human government. Proverbs 21 verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God not only chooses leaders, he leads leaders. Psalm 33, verses 10 through 11, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. God's in charge of every single global event. And let's go from big to personal. How about you? How about you? Acts chapter 17, verse 26, you're in there. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, Paul is saying, as he has some questions that unbelievers are asking there at Mars Hill in Acts 17, He's saying, here's how completely in control the creator of the universe is. He has determined when everyone lives, where everyone lives, and how long everyone will live. That's how sovereign God is. In Psalm 139, David is marveling. I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. My soul knows it very well. And then he says, in your book are written every one of them, the days appointed for me before there was even one of them. Here is how completely sovereign God is over your life. God decided when you would live, where you would live, and how long you would live. Life has a God-appointed beginning, and life has a God-appointed ending. God has appointed our days. You live where you live. You work where you work. You do life where you do life. Why? Because God placed you there. God is sovereign over all the affairs of human activity. And then finally, all things not only includes human nature, not only includes nature, not only includes human activity, but here's the category that our big question is seeking to answer this morning. God is sovereign over evil. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. 
Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Has disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And here is a truth, a hard truth, but I would argue, church, a very hopeful truth that is very difficult to grasp and difficult to believe, to be quite honest, but the Bible teaches it, and so we believe it. Here it is. God uses sin sinlessly to accomplish his wise and sovereign plans. God uses sin sinlessly to accomplish his wise and sovereign plans. Let me give you three examples from Scripture. And they're easy to remember. They all start with the letter J. Joseph, Job, and Jesus. Have you ever considered that one-third of the first book of the Bible explains the ongoing unjust and unfair treatment of one human being by the name of Joseph? One-third of the book of Genesis tracks the life of one of Jacob's 12 sons. And his life was filled with one experience of unjust treatment after another. It starts with his 11 brothers mistreating him, jealous of him, and selling him into slavery to the Ishmaelites. That turns into him being sold into Egypt and lives in the house of Potiphar. And while he's serving in the house of Potiphar, he's falsely accused of a crime he never committed. And then after being falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit, he was sentenced to jail where he was, where it was intended for him to rot and eventually die. There in prison, he helps interpret the dream of one of Pharaoh's servants. And there, that might be his ticket out of jail. But then that servant forgets. And for many, many years, he remains in prison unjustly. Until finally, at the right moment, in the right, at the right time, Joseph has the opportunity to inf- interpret one of Pharaoh's dreams. And as he interprets Pharaoh's dream and warns them of a coming famine that will endanger the whole human population, Joseph is exalted to a place of high authority and influence where God uses him to not only spare the world from a famine, but also to spare the line of the Messiah from dying out. And so after Joseph goes through one experience of unjust treatment, one experience of evil, one experience of suffering after another, his father finally dies and he's huddled up with his brothers. And they know he said he forgave them, but they're wondering if he's going to carry out that forgiveness now that his father is gone. And so he huddles up his brothers and he communicates one of the most profound theological nuggets in all the book of Genesis. And here's what he says in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In other words, one-third of the book of Genesis 
teaches us a pivotal, a pivotal and fundamental truth about the sovereignty of God and human activity, and it's this. Evil actions committed by human beings are simultaneously ordained by God for good. Evil actions committed by human beings are simultaneously ordained by God for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's Joseph. Then there's the unjust and evil treatment of Job, which was ordained by God. And time does not permit for me to get in all the details and the cracks and crevices of this story. But basically what we have in the book of Job is another example of an unjust sufferer. Here's a man who was righteous, the Bible tells us, who lived his life to please God. He was a worshiper of God. And we get a little picture that the curtain is pulled back in the, in the unseen realm where all the servants of God, all the spiritual servants of God are coming to give an account before the throne of God. And one who has to give an account on that day is none other than Satan himself. Because Satan is on a leash. And there Satan believes that the only reason why Job worships God, the only reason why Job honors God is because God has blessed him so tremendously. And so God gives permission to Satan to afflict Job. And so in one day, he loses his seven sons and three daughters. In one day, he loses his possessions and his prosperity. And after he loses not only all of those tangible blessings, after he also loses his health, he comes before God and says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And his wife says, Job, when are you just going to curse God and die? And here's what Job says. Job chapter 2, verse 10. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not also receive evil? In other words, evil committed by Satan ends up also being a means through which God sovereignly accomplishes his purpose in Job's life. And in the end, Job doesn't get all the answers to his questions. But he does realize something significant. God is bigger than him. And he's in control of everything. One final category. Not only the unjust and unfair treatment of Joseph and Job, but I'm sure you've considered this before. The unfair and unjust treatment of Jesus. That was ordained by God. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. Peter on the day of Pentecost testifying to the significance of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, says the following. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 4, 27 and 28. Again, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, 
whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the prophets of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, the greatest evil ever committed on planet Earth was ordained by the hand of God for good. The greatest criminal act in all of human history, the murdering of the Son of God, was God's plan for our salvation. The evil of Herod, the tyranny of Pontius Pilate, the blasphemy of the crowd that cried out, crucify him. All of that evil was a part of God's plan to bring us salvation. The greatest act of evil, the greatest act of injustice ever committed in the world accomplished the greatest good ever imagined the salvation of the world. The sins of others was the means to take away the sins of all God's people. God ordains evil for good reasons. My friends, that's hard, but that's Hopeful. If God is sovereign over the existence of evil, then we can trust that in the end, God will use evil wisely to accomplish his good and redemptive purposes. This is hard, and as I said, this is hopeful. And don't hear me wrong, evil is evil. Evil is devastating. Evil people who do evil things are morally responsible for their evil doing. However, I am here to declare, based upon the authority of God's word, evil is not in charge. God is. Evil doesn't get the last word. What God is doing in the world, in and through evil and suffering and devastation and pandemics and pain will get the last word because God is good. Therefore, our hope is that on the other side of evil, the good purposes of God will be revealed. God ordains sin and suffering and pain and sorrow and devastation and disasters and diseases and de devil and even death to be servants in accomplishing his wise and unstoppable plan for human history. So I've taken a long time to answer the question. How can a loving God allow so much suffering in the world? Here's the one sentence answer. The greatest suffering in human history was simultaneously the greatest display of love in human history. The greatest display, the greatest experience of suffering in human history 
was simultaneously the greatest display of love in human history. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to suffer on a cross in our place for our sins so that we don't have to perish but have everlasting life. God's sovereignty over all things, including human evil, is not a cold and harsh truth. God's suffering over sin and suffering and evil brings to us the greatest, most comforting news ever. There is a way for our sins to be forgiven. There is a way for our evil to be justified. There is a way for those of us who deserve to be separated from God because of our sin to be reunited to God through the forgiveness of sin. Jesus Christ left heaven and came to earth to suffer the righteous one for the unrighteous ones that he might bring us to God. We don't answer this question with sentimentality. We answer this question with scripture. God ordains all things according to his wise, unstoppable plan. And he uses suffering and evil to accomplish his good and redemptive purposes. He did it through his son. He will continue to do it until his son returns. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.